Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Deadhead Canvas Show. I am your host, Rob Hunt from Linnea Holdings, joined as always by my co-host, uh, Larry Mishkin of Michigan Law in Chicago, Illinois. We are here to uh, talk about a whole bunch of fun stuff today, starting off with the fact that, as many of our listeners know, there's a lag from the day we record to the day we actually um, uh, produce the show. So today, being March 15th, the day we're recording, means it is the 83rd birthday of Phil Lesh. Uh, and in honor of Phil's birthday, we, we thought we'd talk about some of uh, Phil's highlights and some other things that we've done, starting off with uh, the day that he broke out Box of Rain, which will be on the day, I think, that we'll be airing the show, which is March 20th, 1986. So uh, let's spin a little bit of that. Now we're going to prove the practice makes perfect. So, Larry, as I've said, you know, sometimes hearing an audience recording is better than a soundboard when it comes to, uh, you know, the really big highlights of the Grateful Dead. And I think on March 20th, 1986, uh, that was the first time we'd heard Box of Rain played by the Grateful Dead in many, many years. And uh, and I think oftentimes the audience uh, recordings do it justice just to show how truly um, exuberant the fans were in hearing that one come back. Uh, I don't know if you could actually hear the one person that caught on right away to what was happening. And you hear him lately in the background go, yeah, it's Box of Rain! And, uh, and then follow up with a, a, another sort of huge yell. But it's always funny to, you know, catching the people that uh, that recognize what's happening the fastest. Look, it's a classic Grateful Dead tune. It was a classic Grateful Dead moment. I was lucky enough to be there. I was talking uh, with my good buddy uh, John Siegel as the set break was ending and the dead were coming on stage and, uh, no, it was right at the end of the first set, excuse me, uh, as they were transitioning into their last song of the first set. And uh, we heard Bobby make that little comment about practice makes perfect, and everybody laughed. And he, they start playing some notes, and he turns to me, and he goes, oh, it's just like Tom Thumb's blues. And then two seconds later, he's like, no, 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 wait, this is Box of Rain. And we were all duly amazed and uh, uh, absolutely incredible. And, uh, you know, to, to be there live and to hear it and to feel that kind of excitement in the room uh, was a, you know, top two or three moment in my Grateful Dead history for sure. And uh, look, he, it launched a very popular dead tune that he then played consistently through the end of the Grateful Dead. And it was one of those tunes that I can never re ever remember a time like, oh, not Box of Rain again, right? I mean, it, it's just such a great tune. And the fact that it wound up being the last tune they ever played as a band speaks a lot. Yeah, I agree. And then, you know, I, I, I was not lucky enough to be there, but um, a couple of years later in the fall of 1991, I took a job at a restaurant in, uh, in North Carolina where I was living at the time. And one of the guys I worked with there was a big deadhead and a big taper. And, uh, he told me the story of being in the parking lot that day, uh, at Hampton and walking around with, um, with a sign that said, Phil, please, 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 please play box of rain. And, uh, and evidently that day in the parking lot, Phil was out there in the crowd and sort of walking around or so he claims, uh, and you know, others like Steve Marcus and a few others were, um, were, were also, you know, taking notice of it. 
and you know, according to him, the lore is that you know that was the day that they played it, and he feels that it's largely attributed to uh, to his begging with a sign in the parking lot that day. But you know, obviously, no one will ever know. But it makes for a good story. Makes for a great story. You know, I assume that uh, they had been practicing it for a little while, and uh, you know, uh, based on Bobby's reference and everything else, and he was just waiting for the right moment. And I think that when we say waiting for the right moment, this kind of takes us into, I know what you wanted to talk about, right? Of all the venues in the United States where Phil Lesh could have chosen to break out Box of Rain, he specifically chose it, chose to do it in the Hampton Coliseum on a spring tour. And what a great place. So I got to ask you, what is it with that venue? I mean, it's not just the Grateful Dead, but, you know, Fish as well and some other bands as well. You talk to a lot of bigger bands, touring bands, and there's something about Hampton, whether it's, you know, the shape of the venue or, you know, if you, uh, I was listening to Big Steve the other day talking about how they were doing a thought experiment at Hampton, trying to get the whole place to like levitate um, because they thought it looked like a spaceship and, you know, how to, how to get it to like sort of transcend um, uh, time and space. But the, the dead chose to, to do a lot of special stuff there. You know, it wasn't just the box of rain breakout. It was, you know, the, the fall of 89 run. It was, um, you know, other things that um, that have kind of made that place like legendary. And for me, like the allure was that you walked in and you're on the floor. You know, it wasn't like you walked in in the main venue and then had to walk down to the floor like most indoor venues. It, it was just that much smaller. Instead of being a 30,000 person venue, it was about, you know, a 15,000 or 12,000 person venue, which made it feel much, much more intimate as a venue than, you know, than like Madison Square Garden or like the Cap Center or the Philly Spectrum. But it was also, you know, it, you, you're outside of that place and visually it's just so crazy looking. I mean, it looks like a, um, a badminton birdie was just jammed into the ground, but uh, <laughs> it's, I think it's commonly referred to as the mothership because of sort of, you know, what, what people think about that place. But I mean, you've seen, I, I've seen, oh, I don't know, six or seven shows total at the Hampton Coliseum. You always saw, saw the big one in 86, but you know, what are your thoughts of that venue? Cause it, like, to me, it was kind of like, you know, Obviously, Red Rocks and Winterland, there's a few others that have gotten, you know, the, the hype. But for, like, the later years, you know, Hampton Hampton held a lot of, um, uh, uh, what's the right word for it, um, reverence from, uh, from the fan base. There's no question about it. And every time we went there, we had a great time. The first time was 1984. We were all seniors at Michigan with a little too much time on our hands in April before graduation. So three carloads of us headed from Ann Arbor out to Hampton to go to those shows. And uh, even from the very first time you walked in, it, like you say, you walked in and you were on the floor. It was all general admission as well. So, you know, you, and then it had seats that were raised up. And, you know, in later years, uh, it was always fun to get there a little bit early and get those seats because if you could get in the first or second row of those seats, you were just above, the, you know, above the crowd. You could see everything, but you never felt like you were too far away from the stage or anything. Uh, one of the other things we loved about Hampton was. Uh, one of the schools played basketball there and they had underneath along the side, along what would be the sidelines uh, tucked underneath the, the level of seats above. They had like those old high school pullout wooden uh, 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 seats that you could sit on bleachers, but for the shows, they were all pushed in so they wouldn't take up any room, but we'd always see them in March. And a lot of times in March, even in Virginia, it was chilly or rainy and we'd have jackets and we discovered you could walk over to where, to where those folded up uh, uh, seats were and you could take your coats and just shove them. Like, okay, I'm right here. I'm under this thing. My coat's all the way shoved in the back. 
come back five hours later, there was your coat. So, you know, it was, uh, there was just so many things about it that were great. The concourse was big and easy to get in and out of. Uh, parking was all right there. Um, and, you know, people came from all over. It, as near as I can tell, it was probably a little bit similar, you know, to what Fish does at Dick's every year, except this was Hampton and it was in the spring instead of, you know, the end of the summer. But it, I really it had that feeling more often than not. It was the uh, start of uh, fall uh, spring tour. And, you know, you could you could expect all sorts of bust outs. And uh, certainly the uh, the box of rain was one. But every year we went there, we had a great time and, and saw great shows and bumped into fun people. And, uh, you know, we, eventually we got to know it well enough that we knew, you know, what hotels we could stay at. And we discovered that uh, on the main drag, not the drag that the uh, um, arena was on, but the drag where the, all the little cheap hotels were that we stayed in a two-mile stretch, there were five 7-Elevens. <laughs> you yeah. could stand in the parking lot of one 7-Eleven and look down the street and see another 7-Eleven, and we could never figure out what it was about Hampton, Virginia that demanded so many 7-Elevens in such a tiny, small area. But rolling out of a dead show, you know, at midnight or later, and the 7-Elevens are open, and of course, they had Waffle House there, so that became an instant hit as well. But uh, we loved Hampton, and the, the building design was crazy. We came out one night after they had had a big wheel and really jammed on it hard, and it was overcast and very cloudy, and the top of the Coliseum is lit up, so when you looked up at the sky, you saw a round circle, which, of course, everybody interpreted as a wheel, and once again, you know, Jerry had, you know, had moved the gods in such a way with his music that they were, you know, giving us a sign on our way out the door, and whether you believed it or not, it was a good story and certainly something to talk about on the way home. But um, The Dead was the only band I ever saw there. And I know that other bands have had tremendous shows. Um, and I, you can probably comment on a few of those as well. But, uh, the you know, for me, the really biggest moment at Hampton was 89 when they played as the Warlocks. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and, and I think the, um, the thing about those shows is, you know, a lot of people um, that were around at the time realize that sometime in, in 1988, uh, early 89, the, the dead outlawed uh, camping and vending or tried to as best they could. But certain venues kind of after like the whole touch of gray era decided they no longer wanted to have the Grateful Dead there, which, you know, necessitated they actually built a venue like Shoreline to make sure they always had a place to play. But Hampton was one of those towns that said, you know, enough was enough after the last time the Grateful Dead had played there and decided they didn't want the, the dead back. And it took a lot of finagling for, for the dead to be invited back to Hampton but the only way they were allowed to do it was to not play as the Grateful Dead and not to uh, release tickets until, you know, pretty much just before the shows. It was kind of surprise announcement shows. And that was the 10-8, 10 1989 shows, which, you know, obviously become, you know, legend uh, based on everything that they played at those shows. But, you know, I don't think anything bigger, and I, I know we featured it on the show before about a year and a half ago, but nothing bigger than the breakout of Dark Star on, uh, on October the 9th, 1989. So again, with an audience clip, maybe we should uh, take a listen there. Cause, you know, if we thought the fan noise was loud during Box of Rain, uh, my goodness for Dark Star. tune and you know with the frequency that they played it around the time when i started seeing shows well actually when i started seeing shows they hadn't brought it back yet so 
Uh, but from when they finally brought it back, you know, they, it would be played periodically here and there. But I have to say, I mean, I, I never really saw a full, uninterrupted, both versus version of Dark Star played by the Grateful Dead. But I did get a chance to hear instrumental versions of it, or maybe they sing one verse and never made it to the second verse. But that's the other thing I think about Hampton, Rob, is that it 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 wasn't just that you know the the dead and all of that. It was the, the makeup of the crowd. It, it really, that's why I said like dicks. It really felt like people came from all over for those shows. And if they were going to see anything on spring tour, it's, we're going to get to Hampton and see those shows. And just an incredible mix of, of deadheads from everywhere and everybody just having a great time and the dead picking up on that vibe, I think, and really feeding into it very well, like only they can do. Yeah. And, you know, the, the 89 version from Hampton obviously gets, you know, as I said, tons of fanfare, but it wasn't that long that they hadn't played it. It was only since 1984 when I think they played it at the Greek theater on July 13th, 1984. But, you know, after five years, five and a half years, I think the prevailing belief was they, you know, they were done with it. They were shelving it because, you know, before the Greek, it was 1981 that they had last played it. So it was kind of already a three-year hiatus. So the, the 89 version, you know, was only the second time they played it in the 80s. And I think a lot of people thought it might be a one-off, and it wasn't until they did it again at Brennan Burn Arena on, on October the 16th, 1989, and then again at Miami uh, a couple days after that, that everyone's like, whoa, Dark Star's back. Um, and just, you know, what, what an amazing thing. But again, of all the venues to kick it off, you know, you wonder why that one and, and why the dead, you know, consistently chose to, uh, to break songs out there. I mean, the, the night before the dark star, they broke out the helps of Franklin's, um, for the first time, the first help slip in, in many years. And then they also were playing, you know, like you bid, we bid you good night for, I think only the second or third time, um, in probably 20 years. There was an addicts too, wasn't there? There was an addicts as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that 10, nine uh, set is just like ridiculous. But um, but again, I think it's a testament to like you know there's certain places where bands just go like let's let's let loose tonight, and uh, it, it's not by accident they choose the same venues to do it. And there aren't too many places I can think of where there've been you know that many breakouts the way there there were for Hampton. Uh, there's a lot of like you know places where they've released new songs. You know like the Oakland Coliseum in February and March was you know pre pre East Coast Spring Tour was a place they um, often try out new tunes, especially in the early '90s. And then you've got the the classics, you know, like the Swing Auditorium or or the Great American Music Hall or some other ones where or Port Chester, where like you just get this wave of new music that comes out. But uh, but in terms of bringing stuff back, you know, I can't think of another place that has many, you know, ones where where they brought it back into the lineup as Hampton. Yeah, I would have to agree that uh, people like it. They feel, I mean, for God's sakes, that's where in what two thousand nine, Fish did their bust out after. Uh, taking their five-year break, right? Wasn't that right? From They took their break after around 2004. Uh, Trey kind of cleaned up. They did whatever other housekeeping they needed, and they came back in uh, Hampton, I think, in 2009 and played three nights there to, you know, to reintroduce themselves to the music world. And yeah, to me, that's incredible because, you know, I mean, just like the Dead are clearly a, a California-based band. I mean, Fish is nothing if not Northeastern, Vermont, and and Connecticut and, and that part of the world where, you know, that's like the whole birthplace of them. And yet they decided they wanted to come back and do it all in Hampton beach. So go figure. And more than that, I mean, you think about some of the legendary fish shows, uh, you know, if you talk to, to most fish fans and you ask them like, what's the best period of fish? I mean, again, everyone's going to have their, their own opinions, but prevailing as an overarching sort of like, 
I would say percentage wise, fall of 97, you know, is the one that like everyone looks at and goes, you know, like these guys were so on fire during fall of 97. And if you look at like sort of the best shows of fall of 97, um, the November 21st, and November 22nd shows from Hampton were about as good as they get. And it was, um, uh, and, and that was not the Hampton comes alive that we'll talk about that in a second. That was 1998 where they ended up putting out a CD. They, they did put these shows out on, um, on the Hampton Winston-Salem box set. But fall of 97, they, they broke out things like Emotional Rescue for the first time, um, did all sorts of other really cool stuff. Like I remember on the on the November 22nd, they kept teasing uh, Brown Eyed Katie in between uh, during the Mike song and the tweezer and just like really fun stuff. But in terms of like jamming, I think the second night of, of Hampton 97, they played a four song second set or five song second set. It was a Haley's Comet, Tweezer, Black Eyed Katie, Piper, Run Like an Antelope. And that was the entire set. Um and the, the night before, the 21st is a four song. It was Ghost, AC, DC, Bags, Slaves of the Traffic Light, Loving Cup. And that was, you know, the whole set. So, like, to be jamming that hard, I, th- I think, I want to say there's, uh, what else is happening during that? There's, like, the amazingly long versions of things. But, um, and, and then the next year, they come back and put out the live album, which is Hamptons Comes Alive, where they covered, like, literally everything random. Like, you know, they're they're playing, um, uh, you know, covers you expect them to play like Bob Dylan tunes like Quinn the Eskimo but then they were doing stuff like you know getting jiggy with it by Will Smith and cry baby cry by the Beagles and boogie on reggae women by by CB Wonder and which ended up in their lineup for a long time but um sabotage by the Beastie Boys tub thumping by Chumbawamba I mean this they just went for it like they just absolutely went for it on on um those two nights in Hampton in 98 uh, which ended up becoming the Hampton, Hampton comes alive um CD but I mean, like, again, there's a reason they chose that venue. And, uh, you know, I, I can't think of another place that fish broke out something like as sort of crazy as what they did in 98 outside of, you know, a, a few weeks earlier when they, um, when they did the dark side of the moon in Salt Lake city, you know, coming out of the Harpua. So it's, uh, you know, different places. And I, I think a lot of bands, if they're used to playing huge venues, love to kind of reward people for showing up to the small venues or going, you know, off the beaten road. Uh, to, to come see him. And to your point, you know, MSG has, has really become Fish's home before that was Boston Garden. But in many ways, like sort of like their spiritual home in the, in the Eastern Seaboard is Hampton. You know, and, and look, whatever it is, you know, good juju in the air, you know, good crystal placement in the ground. I have no idea. But yeah, it it, it is a great place. And um, first of all, Hampton comes alive. I had to explain to my kids what the joke was with that because right with Peter Frampton. Yeah. Right. You know, they're just not old enough to understand that. And that's one of the things I love about these guys too, is they were all coming of age more or less during that period. And, you know, to recognize it and to, and to, and to play off of it is, is, is very clever by them. Um, you know, you mentioned in all the, 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 the breakouts they were doing there, cry baby cry, which, was on the White Album and had been, I guess that's where they had first played it when they covered the White Album, whichever year it was for their uh, Halloween costume. Musical costume. But one of the things that I I love about Fish when they cover albums is the tunes that they zero in on, right? I mean, Loving Cup is an amazing tune on Exile on Main Street in its own right, uh, but there's a lot of great tunes on that album. And, you know, that's the tune they took and, you know, and they really, really made it their own. Now, I, I, I haven't heard them play as much from the white album more recently. I, I know that they, they cover stuff from 
uh, Velvet Underground from the Loaded album, uh, Rock and Roll, and a few of those tunes that they played. And Sweet Jane. Sweet Jane. And we also talked about uh, a week or two ago about how they uh, they still cover uh, the Talking Heads tunes from uh, Remain and Light it, as well as uh, the song Cities. But Cry Baby Cry to me is like one of the unsung heroes of the White Album. It's just, it's a great tune. It's got funny little lyrics. You know, it kind of comes near the end where it's almost like a, a throwaway. And on the uh, the Fish Live that I have that has that show and, and features them covering that, the Cry Baby Cry may be the highlight of the whole costume for me. Uh, so, you know, it, it's great when he picks tunes like that. And, and those are the, you know, those are the songs. You're going to cover the White Album. Doesn't 90% of the world just play back in the USSR and be done with it? <laughs> yeah, just pick pick the up-tempo rocker and, and, and call it a day. But it, to me, back in the USSR, in many ways, is a, a direct shout-out to the Beach Boys. You know, So it's, a, you know, it's Beatles covering the Beach Boys and other people covering the Beatles then. Right. Uh, that's It's funny stuff. Right, um, right. that's true. So speaking of, of albums and, uh, and, and, you know, kind of the, the idea of an album, to me, when I think album, I think vinyl. I don't think, you know, CD or, or, or tape. Uh, I don't know if you saw this, but uh, for the first time since 1987, vinyl has outsold CDs, um, meaning that uh, we're, we're seeing a pretty big resurgence. And it's just—it's not just the DJs, and it's not just you know the hip hop guys that are that are you know getting their techniques turntables out, but it's actually like a lot of um, you know pop artists that are now pressing. Like uh, um, Taylor Swift is now pressing albums on vinyl and, and selling them, and you know a lot of collectors' editions with really high quality vinyl. I, I love this. I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a huge vinyl fan, always have been. I, the sound quality has always been the best on vinyl, better than any other medium. And I'm uh, really happy to see that $1.2 billion in sales last year happened on vinyl. To me, it's wonderful. And it's total redemption because ever since I left college, I've toted around with me, you know, peach crates filled with albums and my turntable and my receiver and all of that. And after I got married, my wife, when we would move, would say, do you really need all these albums? And I say, albums are going to come back someday and I'm going to have albums. And Sure enough, you know, here we are. I, uh, I have my albums, but I, I love buying new vinyl uh, because most vinyl these days is now pressed on the 180 gram uh, vinyl. So, you know, it's like it's like holding a piece of, uh, you know, very heavy cardboard in your hand. It doesn't, you know, the old vinyl you know, was a little more flimsy and you had to be a little more careful with it. I think it certainly also helps with the sound. But I, I, I went back, you know, as various bands release earlier albums and, and now they do it on this uh new 180 gram vinyl i've been going in and buying it and uh look the, you can't beat the album art on a, on a on an album um you know you can't you can't clean marijuana on a cd jewel case let's just say that you need to have a double album and uh all of that kind of stuff <laughs> yeah agreed or, or a big 175 gram uh frisbee right i mean isn't that where we all learned how to clean weed if a, a frisbee or an album right but I will tell you that my, my love of vinyl ends when I'm going to buy complete shows. So like I still get all my Dave's picks on CD and if I'm buying fish shows, I get them on CD. And the reason is because when I'm listening to a show, it's already, you know, troublesome that you have to change the CD at least once or twice to get the entire show in. And, you know, you just hope that they've got that uh, somewhere in the right place. But, you know, literally with an album, you're the way the, the, the dead and fish play, you're, you're changing sides of an album basically every two songs or every song and a half, depending on how long they jam. And for me, that's just too inconvenient, so I stick with my CDs. That uh, makes sense. But, uh, I mean, there's certain things where, where I'll give up the uh, the quality for the convenience. You know, back when MP3s first came out and I could 
download them to my heart's content on Napster. I certainly uh, did that rather than buying albums, even though I knew it was a, a, an inferior medium. The convenience of actually being able to put 10,000 songs on my hard drive uh, certainly outweighed the uh, desire to go out there and spend $10,000 on buying albums uh, on any medium. So understood, even, even if CD doesn't sound as, you know, as perfect, I think, as an album does, uh, I agree. Not having to do the flip makes the convenience factor um, certainly part of the equation. Yeah, it does. Um, and the funny thing about that statistic is it, it actually kind of, you know, coincides with my life experience very well. My wife and I got married in 1988 and for our wedding, we got our first CD player and I got my first CD. Um, was it Ziggy Marley who did One Human, One Vote? I can't remember if it was Ziggy Marley or uh, I'll have to think about that for a minute. But um, then I went out and I bought my second CD, which was American Beauty. And so I figured from that point on, I'm in good shape. And then I basically stopped buying albums for a while. Now here we are, you know, at a point when I've gone back to albums, I'm still buying CDs, but you know, it's wonderful to see the one, you know, that, that everything has come back around because I, I love vinyl. It's just a, an integral part of the rock and roll experience. Yeah. And I think one human, one vote was Johnny Clegg and Savuka. Oh, no, Johnny Clegg. I was just about to say Johnny Clegg and Savuka. You're absolutely right. Absolutely right. And I should have known that before I opened my mouth, but I didn't. So thank you all for sticking with me on that one for a minute. But that was the first CD I ever owned. And I just listened to it over and over because I had a CD player and I thought it was kind of cool, but kept my turntable all these years. Very glad I did. Yeah, I actually got to see, I got to see those guys play with the Grateful Dead at the LA Coliseum on that one single performance they played in the spring of 1991, where there was no tour around it. It was just a one-off, totally random announced show. It was Johnny Clegg and Savuka that opened for the dead that night. Very cool. Speaking of the dead again, don't know what you've heard. I mean, two, about a year and a half ago, we got all this fanfare and hype that Jonah Hill was going to play uh, Garcia in a, in a fan pick or biopic. And uh, Marty Scorsese was slated to direct the movie. And, you know, everyone covered it. There was a wave of stuff in November of 2021 saying this was happening. But I've been looking recently, and I've actually been talking to some friends uh, in L.A. and asked, you know, does anyone know anything about this? And word on the street is this whole project has gotten shelved and that there's uh, there's no money for the project. If you actually go onto IMDb and pull up Jonah Hill's name or pull up Marty Scorsese's name, and it shows what projects they've got in the works, there is nothing about a, a Grateful Dead biopic or a Garcia biopic that's anywhere on those sites. And normally they're, they're pretty good information as to, you know, what those guys have in the pipeline. So have you heard anything about this project in the last year? I have not, but you know, it's interesting to me because we all know that there's plenty of people, uh, I'm sure in Hollywood and tech industries everywhere who have lots of money and who are huge, huge deadheads. And I have to believe that if there was a, a really good project presented to them, you know, that people would almost be clamoring, you know, to, to throw their money into it and be able to put their name on it and, you know, and, and, you know, kind of cash in on that whole, uh, you know, the dead are more popular now than they ever were kind of thing. And so I, it makes me wonder, you know, what kind of a, what kind of a movie did they pitch? Um, you know, we had, we talked about this a while ago with Jonah Hill. And although I will say that, you know, as I've seen him in more recent projects and he's, you know, he's got the hair, you know, going back, he's got the beard and he's got a little bit of girth on him. And I suppose with the right kind of makeup, they could probably make him look like Jerry Garcia. Um, but there was still some skepticism as to, you know, whether, anybody was right to play Garcia, but, you know, let alone somebody like Jonah Hill. Um, and that's not a slam on Jonah Hill. I love him in a lot of the movies that he's in. 
but this is a this is a really tricky one to make because your audience are people who take their details very seriously. And if you tell a story that doesn't jive with, you know, the story that deadheads have, you know, grown up on, um, you know, you're going to get some pushback. So, it, I mean, look, Scorsese is Scorsese, right? I mean, he's the Jerry Garcia of the movie industry. He can make whatever he wants and, you know, people line up to produce it for him. So um, it, that, that's a great question. And I, I'd be very curious to see what happened and, you know, wonder if, if it's gone or they just have to rethink it. Yeah, I mean, you think that with with Scorsese, whatever Scorsese says he wants to do, you'd think that it would be greenlit by the uh, the studios, especially if it's something, as you said, I mean, The Grateful Dead's popularity hasn't waned. And you think about, you know, okay, Jonah Hill, sure, take take it or leave it, whether he's the right pick to uh, to play the part. But, uh, but you know, not having the, the money to do this doesn't, to me, doesn't make a great deal of sense. But uh, <clears throat> the only other thing I can think of is that, you know, nowadays, unless you're part of the Marvel Universe or the DC Universe, your, your movie's not getting made, you know, it's, it seems like, you know, you've either got to be a sequel or you've got to be a, a superhero to, to have a film made these days. And like, you know, I don't know if you watched the Oscars the other night. I, I sure didn't. Like I care less about what's happening. I can't think of the last time I went to a movie theater to see a movie. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm watching pretty much whatever's trending on Netflix these days, like everyone else in America is. And it's all drivel. And, you know, look, the fact that every person in America saw Tiger King, you know, kind of speaks to where we are as a society of, of what we choose to watch. But, uh, you know, you, you think that, um, that, you know, coming out with something that's unique and fresh and cool would, would be a breath of fresh air, but perhaps the, uh, the, the studios don't see it the same way anymore. And I've got absolutely no idea how they make their decisions, but 90% of what they produce, I have no interest in seeing anymore. There, there is no, there is no creativity, or at least, you know, if it is, it, it doesn't make any money. It's, it's art for art's sake. Well, to me, the big, a big, other big question with the Scorsese project that we're talking about is, did the band ever buy into it? You know, and, and to what level? And did the band ultimately see the script or the script idea and say, no, we don't like this. This isn't right. You know, and, and, and that's probably, I, I would have to guess, play some significance in all of this, right? If the band is behind it and, and you know, we're and, and the drummers and Phil or maybe not Phil, you know, uh, support it and, and, and think it's a good idea. Um, that would seem to me to also be something that would be make it very attractive to a lot of these folks out there with you know more money than they know what to do with who love the Grateful Dead or at least want to be associated with them. And you know, I, I imagine like everything else in the world, you know, stories will eventually come out. Listen to Big Steve long enough, I'm sure he'll have a version of it, and um, you know, we'll find out, and maybe they'll ultimately come back and do it again. But you know, as we talked about, it was always kind of a touchy idea in terms of whether it could really be done in a way that would be meaningful to the target audience, I suppose, is the deadheads. But, you know, it's one of the reasons why I don't work in Hollywood. Yeah, no doubt. And speaking of things that never got done, there was an article that came out this past week about um, the Pigpen album that never was. Uh, if you got a chance to look at that, uh, our producer, Dan Humiston, actually found that one for us. And what made this one interesting is it really talks about the fact that in 1971, you had, you know, everyone else come out with their own albums. You know, obviously Garcia's first album soon followed by by um, Ace and by, uh, I think, Rolling Thunder that, you know, were all individual projects for um, for Jerry, for Bobby and Mickey, respectively. But uh, in many ways, they're all, you know, quasi Grateful Dead albums anyway, based on the personnel that played on these albums. But the article was really uh, focused on the, the idea that Pigpen actually in, in 1971-72 had a fair amount of material that you know wasn't going to make it onto American Beauty or Working Man's Dead. Uh, either it was some of his old blues you know classics or, or some other tunes that only ended up you know making it onto um, uh, onto uh, live recordings or you know like Europe 72 as a as a release. But um, 
you know, reading through it, uh, it did strike me that there was a fair amount of material that he probably could have put out and very likely would have put out, but for the fact that he passed away in, uh, in 72. Did, did you get a chance to read that one? I did. And, and what, that's one of the things I liked was the guy gave us his best guess as to what, you know, what the, what the song tracks would, the track listings would be for the album. And I didn't really have any objection to what he put on there. I thought in fact that, that, that he hit it pretty well, but it does raise a lot of questions, right? I, I, I I don't know enough to know exactly when Pigpen uh, started to take ill uh, with what eventually killed him due to all of his drinking. Uh, and, I, and I don't know if that was something that, that, that might have sidetracked him away from doing this kind of a project. Um, you know, it's often been told also that Pigpen uh, was a very kind of shy guy who didn't, you know, think nearly as much of himself as other people did. And so, you know, I wonder if maybe there was some question in his own mind. Um but certainly, you know, like you say, I mean, he, he probably would have done it just with the band guy, the guys in the band anyway. I mean, what's, what Ace is just the Grateful Dead with Bob Weir headlining it. Um, you know, and Rolling Thunder is the same thing with a lot of the dead guys in it. So I don't know. I mean, it, it's, it's a fascinating thing. And again, you know, I, I suppose a guy like Big Steve might have better insight on that, having been there at the time. But um, Pigpen was nothing if not a talented singer who loved to show off his stuff. And you talk about Europe 72, right? Two Souls and Communion and Chinatown Shuffle are the ones that immediately come to mind for me uh, that, you know, that never quite made it onto to anything. Mr. Charlie. Right. And Mr. Charlie, too. Correct. Right, right, right. Mr. Charlie. Um, and those are all great songs. Um, I, and I don't know why they didn't, you know, what, what the issue was or what the problem was, because they're very fun songs. And Chinatown Shuffle is nice because for Pig, it's kind of like a short, snappy tune instead of a long drawn out, you know, uh, where he, where he starts, you know, doing his rap and all of that and everything, not that there's anything wrong with it, but it's just a, a, a different type of song for him. And, um, two souls in communion too. That's a, you know, that's much more of a really soft, you know, love story kind of song, you know, whatever you want to say about it. Um, but, but apparently he had a real affinity for that too. And you can certainly hear it when he sings it. Um, so yeah, the truth is there was a ton of material that Pig could have put out, and but you know, what what it does is it it just takes us into the what if game, right? What would the Grateful Dead have been like if Pigpen had not died? Now we know American Beauty and Working Man's, you know, he was on both of those, so he was already integrated into that part of their music. Um, but you know, can you imagine an, an older surprising like he chose Operator to be on that rather than you think that like Mr. Charlie would make a lot more sense to have made it on one of those albums? Like Operator was so far out of the ordinary of like what you consider to be like pig style, whereas Mr. Charlie is like very much in sort of the the, the blues tradition and uh, you know the, what you'd expect to hear pig singing. So like even the the song selection that they did put on those albums to me is a, is a bit of an outlier for what you consider to be pig. If pig had stayed though, I mean, how different, what do you think, how, the, how would that have impacted the dead? They would have had another lead singer that would have presumably, you know, not necessarily gone out and gotten a whole bunch of other keyboard players. But, you know, I, I wonder, you know, where pig's role would have been say on um, any of their mid 1970s albums, you know, pick one and, and yeah. Wake of the flood Mars hotel. Yeah. Right. And I'm not sure where they were going with their music at that time. Help Slip Frank is, is not really a pig tune. Um, you know, there's really no place for him to jump into that. But, you know, I mean, maybe he would have just continued to evolve and come up you know, with music based on his blues roots. There's always room for a blues tune on a dead album. Um, but we'll never know any of it. And, you know, it, it's, it's sad on the one hand. And on the other hand, it just is what it is. And this is what shaped the dead. And by the time I saw him, you know, 
Pig was figuratively an afterthought, at least until I understood who he was and you know, really, really could revere him for the uh, contributions that he made. So in other words, he was never part of my dead experience, but I, I would have been very happy to have been able to see the Grateful Dead with Pigpen. I think it would have been a great experience and a lot of fun. Well, the, uh, the, the article we're referencing right now was produced in Far Out Magazine, which is a UK-based magazine. And the, uh, the author had um, proposed that uh, an album could have been something like this, Side A, Mr. Charlie, Next Time You See Me, Good Lovin', uh, Then Two Souls in Communion, with a side B of Hard to Handle, Empty Pages, I'm a Lovin' Man, It Hurts Me Too, and Chinatown Shuffle. And the one thing I thought was surprising is he actually left off um, uh, Love Light, which you know, you'd think would be the natural you know, pig pen song that would make it onto a, a pig album. And the one thing he got wrong in the uh, in, in the article is that he talked about Good Lovin' being the song that had the uh, the pig pen rap in it when it was obviously Love Light that had the big big long pig raps. So uh, yeah, an interesting article and an interesting way to, to think about this. Um, and again, I don't think there's any um, uh, any real uh, truth behind what he's putting out there, but it was more of an idea of like could this have happened? So it was interesting enough to to read through and, and to, uh, to to comment on. What else is happening out there? Yeah, let me tell you what else happened. Um, again, you know, due to the vagaries of when we record this and when you guys hear it, uh, it'll now be two weekends ago for you, for you folks. But on March 11th and 12th, uh, I got to uh, catch two nights of Phil and Friends at this new salt shed uh, venue here in Chicago, an old Morton Salt building. It was always right along the highway. And they'd always put up little fun slogans on there, but it had the Morton Salt girl with her umbrella and the can of salt in the back spilling all over the place and some developers bought up the land all around it and they're apparently they're doing a whole big development out there but this has now opened up they had a few shows there in the summer but just a month ago the inside portion of it opened it's like walking in to like a big old time warehouse and but it's it's long so uh it's it's like 95 percent floor and in the very back they have like some seats to kind of rise up and form a pyramid as they go up uh, but we were on the floor both nights great sound crowded but not unbearably so and uh what a lineup with phil right warren played these two shows his son graham was there uh jason crosby again john molo and i decided after these two shows and and i say this with all due respect and with all due reverence to joe russo who is just a tremendous 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 musician i really think john molo is my favorite post-dead drummer he's got he's got a fun attitude back there he's always playing with the crowd and when it comes time to play, he's just solid. He just plays a tremendous drum kit. And I, I, I really enjoy when he's there. Um, and, and then, of course, they had uh, uh, the, the, um, the, the benefit of the Trey Band uh, horn section of Natalie, uh, James, and Jennifer. And I, you know, it raises the question, what happens when Phil and the Trey Band are touring at the same time? But uh, this is why you go to see Phil Lush, because these are the shows that he plays, right? Set one, Dear Mr. Fantasy, playing in the band. Jack Straw, She Said, She Said, which is a Warren favorite. You know you're going to get that. Phil doing his best to sing Birdsong. The Nod to Jerry with Liberty. And then let me tell you something. They closed that first set with Jennifer Hartswick singing Broke Down Palace. And folks, I'm going to tell all of you, you need to go on YouTube and you need to find Jennifer singing Broke Down at the salt shed on March 11th, 2023. And you will be amazed, not just what a great voice she has. We know that, but the way she takes this song and I, and I love Jerry's version of it, of course, but she belts it out in like an old fashioned, almost like gospel style where she's just laying into it. 
and it, it just totally caught me off guard uh, just how good it was. Um, you know, they came out in the second set w- with Dark Star, which was Phil and Graham and Warren singing. And then uh, after a China Cat uh, Wharf Rat, they came back into Dark Star, this time again with Natalie James and Jennifer each picking up a verse, which was tremendous. They did Terrapin, and then I think they did the, the whole Terrapin suite. They they were playing something, and my wife and I were sure to God that they were going into Sweet Home Alabama, or, excuse me, Freebird, which I thought was hysterical given the show we just did. And at the last minute, all of a sudden, it's the Terrapin melody coming back in. So I, I, I've never heard, I never saw the dead when they were doing it do the full Terrapin suite, so I'm not as familiar with it. Um, but then they went Stella Blue. So in the second set, we got Warren doing Warf Rat and Stella Blue, uh, a fill on Broken Chain. And then they played Touch of Grey for the Encore, which is pedestrian for the most part, except for the fact that James Casey sang it. And I got to tell you, Rob, he was amazing. Um, you know, just so incredible how good these guys are and, you know, the, the talent that they surround themselves with. And, uh, you know, what can you say? The second night they came out and opened with Sunshine of Your Love into Deep Ellen Blues again with Jennifer singing and, and just making herself amazing. Natalie with a great trombone solo, James with a great sax solo, uh, a great Bertha from Graham. Uh, he's gone this time with Natalie singing and she killed it. Uh, always fun pride of Cucamonga, uh, Cassidy, and then a sugary, uh, again by Warren. That's just out of control. And I have to give my son, Jonathan, who went with me the second night, total credit because I was sitting there thinking I had no idea what they were going to play. And I was waiting to hear it. And he said, dad, isn't that sugary? And I'm like, son, you are absolutely right. He got the call. It was all good. And then listen to this second set. Low Spark of High Heeled Boys, Scarlet Begonias, Mountains of the Moon, Uncle John's Band, Eyes of the World, Shakedown Street. I, I, there, there's no time to stop. And then they come out and uh, Phil's doing his donor rap. And for the first time ever, I heard him talk about karmic responsibility, which I thought was great. And then they did the encore, which was uh, Aretha Franklin's Rock Steady. And again, Jennifer sang it. And what a great way uh, to wrap up two amazing nights. Um, I know uh, tonight, the night we're taping on his birthday, they're playing their first night at the Capitol Theater. Uh, they've got Rick from Goose and maybe the the, the, the keyboard player, too. Um, they've got uh, Modesky uh, is going to be playing with them. And um, I don't remember who they said the drummer was going to be, but but the, the horn section is going to be there again. Uh, my brothers are going uh, to the weekend shows and I was invited out there. But uh, this was not the weekend for me to go, but I got my fill of... Uh, Phil here, if you will. And I'm just going to say this because this has been burning a hole in me and this is the perfect place to vent and then never talk about it again. The second night when I was going into the show and they really didn't have the whole situation set up very well, I walked through a metal detector. My pockets were emptied of all my metal stuff and everything. And on the other side, I'm gathering stuff up. I'm putting them back in my pockets like everybody. And everybody's walking up to show their tickets. And some little guy who must have been 50 years old, and I swear probably applies to the police academy every year and gets rejected comes running up to me. I was wearing cargo shorts and in my lower cargo pocket, I had some stuff in there and he came, what's in that pocket? And I pulled out two bandanas that I keep in there. I say bandanas. And I kept walking and he grabbed me and pulled me back. And he said, no, no, there's something else in there. What's in there? What are you hiding? I said, what are you talking about? And he reached up and he tapped it. He goes, you've got something in there. So he called over his manager. The manager said, what do you have in your pocket, sir? So I took out this plastic bag that had two film canisters and a little glass one hitter. And they said, well, what's in the film canisters? I said, film, can I go now? <laughs> nope. 
they wouldn't let me go. They kept hassling me about it and finally said they were taking it. I said, well, what if I leave? Can I leave and have it? Nope, we're taking it. I said, you can't take it. I'm over the age of 21. This is a, a an adult use state and in the city of Chicago, under 14 grams, which this is, is decriminalized. This, I'm not even committing a criminal act right now. You can't take this stuff away. And they gave me a hard time. Weren't going to give it back to me. Guy threw it in the trash can. Another girl who works there came running up laughing. Don't throw it there. Grabbed it out and took it off in the back. And I'm like, what are you guys going to do? Go smoke my pot in the back now? You know, wouldn't say anything. I said, enough. And I walked in and had a great show and it was all fine. But I have to tell you, I've been seeing the Grateful Dead since 1982. And if you go from 82 to that night, every dead show, every formation of any kind of a dead show you can imagine, I've always carried marijuana in. I've never been stopped. I've never been hassled. And I, I was stunned, quite frankly, that this guy was going out of his way to make this an issue. Other people around me were kind of stunned by the whole thing. Um, and I'm thinking, and I was saying to the manager, I'm like, dude, this is the Grateful Dead. Are you stopping every single person that's going into your venue? And the excuse was, well, the city of Chicago has a no smoking ordinance. We can't allow anybody to smoke anything. I said, except for two things, give me my pot and I'll leave and I won't smoke, which you're not letting me do. And I was here last night. Everybody in the place was smoking. Did you guys get fined by the city for that? Or did you do, or did you do anything to stop it while it was happening? Did you walk around the, you know, you, you can't espouse one philosophy and then don't do anything about it when it's right in front of you. Well, if you're going to host the Grateful Dead in your venue, I would agree. Look, if somebody comes in holding 10 joints and handing them out, you do something. But the rule has always kind of been, you know, if it's in your pocket, I've gone through a metal detector. I don't have any weapon on me. There's no need to go out of your way to shake somebody down to get their marijuana just to take it away. Don't work at a Grateful Dead show. Go try and join the police academy again. And if you can't, you'll figure out something else to do. But, you know, it, it, it's, look, in the overall scheme of things in the world, it's small potatoes. And, you know, it wasn't that much marijuana. And there were, the best part about it is when I told my story in sight, people couldn't give me, take a hit of this joint, try this, try that. Everybody was like, oh, right. But it, it defeats the purpose. We've talked about this before, you know, trying to get into shows and you know, there's always one or two people who've just decided that it's their job to, you know, to really button it down and make sure that nobody crosses that line. And I, I've, I've never understood that attitude and I've never understood why somebody would want to put somebody on the spot like that and, you know, do something where they wouldn't enjoy the evening as much as they might otherwise have. And it was an unfortunate experience, but as I say, the show is fantastic. Had a good time with my son and my buddies and, uh, you know, we, we, I, I will go back to see another show and I'll just be more discreet next time. Yep. Yep. And I think that's a, a good segue into our, uh, into our final sort of story about what's happening out there. And we've talked about it a lot recently with the whole, um, split between synthetic cannabinoids and, and real cannabis and what's happening right now and, and how the industry is looking at it. But, uh, you know, we've seen recently that the, uh, the DEA has claimed that THCO is illegal, or at least that's their take on it. But the question is, are, are companies that are producing it changing their uh, their business models as a result thereof? And uh, MJ Business Daily put out a decent article this past week that you know really discussed you know some of these companies that operate in in the gray area, or, or they, they would say they're not in the gray area. They say they're they're absolutely in the in the light. Um, that they're not changing anything until the the new farm bill is out, and you know something actually says Congress actually acts. The, the way they look at it is that whatever the DEA wants to to put out there isn't in fact law. The only law is what actually is, you know, in, in the language of the farm bill. And their belief is that, um, that they are still doing things a hundred, hundred percent legally, but it is now, you know, turning into something that is, is taking a huge dent out of the legalized cannabis industry 
where these guys don't pay 280 taxes. They don't, um, you know, have to pay all sorts of the same um, uh, other additional costs that the cannabis-based businesses do. And according to Brightfield Group, which, you know, take it or leave it, whether or not you think their, their research is any good, but they're predicting, you know, that this year it's going to be a $3.2 billion industry of Delta-8 and other cannabinoids. And that's, you know, completely away from the uh, the legal cannab- uh, cannabis sector. So, you know, I'm curious, the same the same thing that just happened to you in, um, in that venue, would they be okay with, um, you know, fully legal, even, you know, take, take the adult use state, you know, part of this out, but, you know, you walking in with, uh, with a vape cart, let's say that's, you know, filled with, with Delta eight where, uh, you know, you're not smoking at all. You know, it's like, where, where are we on this and how are we going to actually, you know, make a, um, a bright line distinction between these two sides of the industry and who's going to win, who's going to lose on this? Cause it's not going away. No, it's not. And, you know, funny you should mention that because two days ago I got a call from a client who is a distributor of CBD-based, of hemp-based products. And one of the retail shops that he sold to in in one of the rural counties uh, got busted. And they got busted and charged with possession of eight ounces of THCA. So he called me up and said, can they do that? I said, "Was what was the overall Delta 9 THC level in the product was an under 0.3 goes. I got a lab report that says it was well under 0.3. I said, then they've made a bad arrest. You know, they, they're not going to be able to keep these guys in jail. They're not going to be able to keep the product. And we're going to have to go down to this lovely rural community and, you know, put on our professor hats and teach them everything in very polite voices with highlighted copies of the 2018 farm bill and the Illinois industrial hemp act, which all very, very clearly state that, you know, hemp and all of its constituent cannabinoids. THCA is a constituent cannabinoid. Is there THC in there? Delta 9 THC? Yes, there is. We know this. We know this is a fact that all hemp has THC in it on some level or another. So don't tell me that you've tested it and it tests hot. Tell me how hot it tests. And if you can't do that, you don't have probable cause and you have no business keeping these people in jail. But, you know, for us, it's like, well, it's an argument we can go down and make, but for these people, it's their livelihood. And in this case, their personal freedom. You know, that this is not just, oh, a bad day at the office. This is they've thrown me in jail. They've taken my product. They've damaged me financially. You know, all of this dealing with a perfectly legal product, 100% legal. And it's not enough to say, well, it all looks like marijuana to us. That's as much of breaking the law as what they're accusing these people of doing, right? Which isn't really, but in their minds, it is. It's like, come on, guys. Learn, it's not that difficult. 2018 is a long time ago. These are not new issues. And, you know, for any law enforcement agency to still be operating under the premise that a hemp-derived product is illegal on any level unless it tests over 0.3% is preposterous. And if Congress wants to change that in the next farm bill, let them change it. But until then, this is what we got. And you have to be consistent with the law that the U.S. Congress passed and that was adopted by the state of Illinois. I mean, it's, 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 it's not even a close call. No, it's not. And, and the, the problem with it is that, look, if the police want to pick you up, they're going to pick you up. If the DA wants to prosecute, they're going to prosecute. It doesn't matter if it's a good arrest or a bad arrest unless you actually have the funds to, to stop them and you know uh, go on the attack yourself and say, you know, I'm going to sue the city or I'm going to sue, which ultimately the, the taxpayer bears the burden of, um, of the mistakes the police officers make. It's certainly never the cops. You know, people don't lose their jobs over these things. It's, uh, you know, essentially a, a situation where they're insulated uh, 
And you've got to go to great expense yourself to try to win one of these things. And ultimately, what is what's the harm? What's the recovery? Unless they've you know gravely injured you or, or, or done something else, you know, again, you can you can file a suit, but recovery of damages, you've got to be able to prove that uh, that you know you experienced a harm that was greater than the cost of your of your suit. So it, it makes it terribly terribly difficult for you know the average person who gets picked up on a, on a wrongful arrest. To, uh, to defend themselves and to have any recourse against the police officers that did it. And those guys don't care. Their, their reaction is, well, you know, we, we couldn't tell the difference and we don't expect that you're ever going to fight back. And, oh, tough luck. You spend a night or two in jail. You know, get over it. When they, uh, for anyone that's ever been arrested wrongly. That, right. It's, it's terrible. And, and when they say we can't tell the difference, you know what my response is? Then you don't have probable right. cause. Yeah. And, and until you can tell the If difference. you don't know what you're dealing with, how can you – Right. How can you how can you claim that there's probable cause to be arresting somebody? Yeah. You have no idea what you're dealing with is what you're telling us. It looks like one thing, so you assume that's what it is. That's not the way the law works. No, nope, that's absolutely right. But again, how the law works, you know, it's it's, it's the, how the legal system works. It's more important for the average person, and you know, you have very little in the way of recourse unless you're a deep pocketed individual that wants to make an example out of a, of a police officer or a police force. And even then, you know, you're, you're hiring the, the most expensive and, you know, the, the largest legal team to attack a group that ultimately is still, you know, arguably trying to do what's in the best interest of the community. In, in this case, they make a mistake and, you know, their their response is, is coming from the police union of, you know, all right, do we actually settle this thing? But there's, there's nothing that's going to happen to that officer. And uh, we don't hold them to a high enough standard. And uh, unfortunately, this is far too frequent. And we only hear about it when it's people that have the means to, to do something about it. But you think about the, the, the thousands and thousands and thousands of people that are picked up on, on, you know, bogus cannabis charges every single day that can't do anything about it. And they've got a black mark on their record for the rest of their life. Cause very likely they're going to plead out on the thing rather than have to, to risk, you know, fighting something that they know they're in the right on. Uh, and it's amazing to me that the prevailing belief is like, Oh, well, you know, you won't get in those situations. If you don't do anything wrong. Well, plenty of people don't do anything wrong every day and are still arrested for it. So it's, uh, it, 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 until I went through it myself, uh, it was hard for me to, to believe. And since I went through it, you know, 12 years ago, whatever it was, I, I've looked at the entire system completely differently uh, as a result of just how unfairly it is stacked against the, um, the, the person who's picked up for things that they may not have done. And right now, you know, if you're, if you're possessing, Anything that's a Delta Eight product, technically, I don't care what they are, the the police officers are saying, or you know what the DEA is saying. The farm bill says otherwise. The language of the farm bill says otherwise. So you know, as I said, I don't think this problem is going away, and I'm very curious to see whether or not more and more stores, um, you know, get charged with crimes, and whether or not there's you know some sort of way to prevent this, but. I think, I think we're going to see it come to a head, and I think we're going to see it come to a head before the end of this calendar year in, in a much more meaningful way. And I think, you know, I'm very curious to see whether or not the, uh, the members of Congress have the ability to understand, you know, kind of the, uh, the nuance of this issue and have the ability to actually draft a new uh, piece of legislation that solves it. And again, I am not confident in that outcome. I don't disagree. Um, the only place where I give hope is the fact uh, that given Kentucky's stature as such a big hemp state, uh, that at least this effort has the backing of Mitch McConnell. And, uh, you know, maybe that helps push through uh, a, a hemp bill that's favorable to those in the hemp industry and who want to be able to 
to work in the hemp industry. Um, you know, or maybe not, but, uh, you know, the feeling is if he's not on your side, uh, he has the wherewithal to make sure it never sees the light of day. Um, you know, so we'll, we'll, we'll see where it, where it all goes. Congress is going to obviously have to speak to these things. And my hope is that when they finally speak to it, that it's not just a knee-jerk pushback reaction. You never told us that people could get high off of this stuff. If we knew that, we never would have approved it, right? We have to see Congress understand and recognize what it really is and be able to make laws and, and rules that are consistent with that and not at odds with it. Yeah, well, I think they could do that relatively easily with um, with a very simple fix of uh, in wording of the language. I just don't think they will. Um, I, I, I never underestimate Congress's ability to screw things up uh, as they're trying to draft new legislation. So I think it might take you know the 2028 Farm Bill to, to fully close the loophole. And you know, look, those that are um, that have an interest in this uh, certainly have a motivation to try to figure out the end around and look at the language and say, okay, well, you know, can we exploit it to uh, to our favor? So unless the language is exceptionally clear uh, now, they've got you know a fair amount of um, of precedent that you know would substantiate that what they have been doing is legal. So now they've actually got to figure out how to really walk it back, which is tough. So all things to uh, to discuss over over the coming months. Um, but Larry, you know, I think we should probably talk about the fact that it, it may not be me discussing it with you. Um, you know, this will be my last show here for for a little bit of time. I'm going on vacation uh, this week, and uh, when I come back. Uh, be taking a little bit of a break from the show. I'm not sure for, for how long, but, um, you know, I, I want to do, I want to absolutely say thank you to both you and, uh, Dan Humiston for, for having me with what started off being a couple guest appearances to becoming a co-host to becoming a year and a half, almost two years later that, uh, that I've been doing this every week with you. Um, uh, but with work schedule and everything else, so I've got to take a bit of a break to, uh, to get some other things back, um, back online. But my favorite part of every week for the last couple of years has been sitting in this uh, virtual studio with the two of you and talking about two of my favorite topics, being the Grateful Dead and cannabis. And uh, it, it'll be tough for me to take a break from this. So, you know, again, thank you to you both for, for being as gracious as you've been to, to have me a part of this uh, the show. Well, thank you, Rob. Uh, we've enjoyed having you on the show. It's a lot of fun. You're a good guy. We just enjoy hanging out and uh playing over it's lots of fun so we'll have to find other opportunities in the future to continue our antics and uh and good times when we all meet in the industry um enjoy your uh, your time off and your skiing that's good for you and well deserved and uh and very very nice and uh hopefully you won't be a stranger and we'll see you around here from time to time or we can at least call you when we have these burning questions that only you have the answers to well i do think that you know i'll probably be on some shows you know coming up unless you call me and say i found a new uh, a new host right away so expect that when I get back from vacation, I'll still be on a few shows. But this is kind of the uh, the, the announcement that I'll, I'll probably be taking a break. So we don't we don't know when that will be. But you know, as I've made a promise to to you and to Dan, um, you know, let, let's keep this going in, in, until we we find a suitable um, you know a couple of guests that want to jump in or a single guest that jumps in. So nothing nothing officially set in stone yet outside of uh, a couple a couple weeks break, and uh, and then we'll see. But um, but I, I expect to always be. A, uh, a part of the show in, in some way or another, as long as you guys uh, decide to have me. <laughs> that will always be the case, no doubt about it. And, uh, you know, look, uh, w- whatever happens, happens. The show will go on. It's, it's too much fun. And uh, uh, we get such good reactions to it that uh, uh, there's no reason for it not to keep going on. And, um, and we'll see where things go. Um, 
what do you got for us on the way out the door from uh, uh, our whole theme here today? Well, I wanted to go with a little bit more of Hampton, you know, and obviously we talked about Fish when we talked about the Grateful Dead, but there's one other key uh, band that, that had some good times with Hampton, and that is the, uh, the Jerry Garcia band. I can tell you that one of the shows I got a chance to see that uh, has always stuck in my mind was the uh, the November the 9th, 1991 Garcia Band show at Hampton that uh, Bruce Hornsby played on. Uh, arguably, you know, maybe the greatest shining star ever played, but I would I would argue against that and say that, you know, the best ones were in 94, 95 when the crowd sang back at the end. But, you know, in terms of a, a great, you know, loopy shining star, this is one of the best. But what really made the show memorable for me was the, uh, the cover of Van Morrison's Bright Side of the Road, uh, for the same reason that I love like the 91887 La Bamba that comes out of the Good Love and the MSG, just the sheer gusto that Garcia goes into the uh, into the lyrics. Uh, it's in a really similar vein where once in a while, or, or like the Day Tripper from 85, you know, where, where Jerry just belts things out. He comes into this bright side as, as strong as he ever has lyrically and anything. I wish I had a, a, a better sounding recording. I used to have a fabulous recording on tape for years, but the one I could find online has a little bit of distortion to it, but it still does it justice. So if, if people aren't familiar, as you said, you know, the bands choose to cover some obscure songs. Brightside isn't necessarily when you think Van Morrison, you think into the mystic and moon dance and, you know, some others like that caravan. Um, you don't necessarily think about Brightside, but Brightside is an absolutely fantastic Van Morrison tune. And uh, not only did Garcia cover it on this night, but it became part of that whole fall 91 tour. And from time to time we cover it after that, but really, the fall of 91 was when he really jumped into this one. And the Hampton night was the night that, um, you know, if you were to pick one as good as it gets. So I was going to leave us with that. And, uh, and, you know, thank you to all the good times at the Hampton Coliseum from all the bands I've gotten to see there. And what a great venue, what a great place. And uh, really a lot of fun discussing it, you know, in the same way that we would a, a Winterland or a, um, or a Red Rocks. Yep. Absolutely. Well, thank you. Um, that all sounds good. I look forward to hearing it. I'll let you take us home. All right. This is Rob Hunt with the Deadhead Canvas Show saying thanks for tuning in and listening. And to steal a, a line from Larry Mishkin, enjoy your canvas responsibly. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey friends, I'm Brandon and I'm Saba and we are your host of the Cannabis Hangout podcast, an educational platform to connect with the cannabis community and share personal stories while breaking the stigma of marijuana. Join us every Sunday at 7 p.m. to gain valuable insight with different perspectives from industry leaders, growers, and medical marijuana patients. This is a place to learn so much from different angles in the cannabis industry. So tune in while, while we, we break, break it all down. down.